1: lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Fourth foundation of mindfulness, that is contemplation of dhammas. Understanding that in this context, dhamma means categories of experience or how different factors function. And the first of the categories mentioned in the sutta is that of the hindrances. We discussed the nature of the hindering mind states, both in general, and also looked in some detail at how to work with sensual desire and exploring the five steps that the Buddha outlines in the sutta. That is, knowing when the hindrance is present, knowing when it's absent, knowing the conditions that lead to its arising, knowing the conditions that lead to its removal, (coughs) and knowing the conditions that prevent future arising. So these five steps are repeated with each one of the hindrances. All of these steps further our understanding of the conditioned, selfless nature of phenomena. That as things arise... (coughs) when the appropriate conditions are present for their arising. And they pass, they pass away when those conditions change. It's deepening insight into the experience that there's no one behind, there's no self behind this passing show. Tonight I'd like to continue the discussion with regard to aversion which is the second of the hindrances, highlighted by the Buddha for our investigation. So what is aversion, and how do we recognize it when it's present? The Pali word for aversion is patiga, which literally means striking against. So Bhikkhu Bodhi elaborates ...on this meaning, and he calls it the attitudes of mind of resistance, of rejection, of destruction. That is all different aspects of the condemning mind. The mind which is condemning in one way or another the present object. And as we know from our experience, it includes a wide range of aversive states the most extreme form it includes violent rage and hatred it includes anger ill will animosity annoyance irritation fear and in a much more subtle way it also includes the mind states of sorrow and grief there is a component of aversion in those states as well For me there's something of interest here as we contemplate the English usage of some of these words. In the Abhidhamma, hatred, the Pali word is dosa, and aversion are used synonymously. And so all of the aversive manifestations from that perspective are rooted in dosa, are rooted in hatred which is one of the three unwholesome roots. But in English, we usually reserve the word hatred for an intense hostility or an extreme dislike. So how do we reconcile these two understandings of what hatred means and how it's used? I think there's an insightful, but perhaps not obvious, understanding in the mind. And we consider that even the milder forms of aversion, the ones we're more familiar with, are actually rooted in the more powerful underground force of hatred. And we see this erupt. We see this underground force, which usually we're not connected with, Except as it manifests in its more mild forms. But we see this underground force of hatred often erupt in times of war, you know, or racial or ethnic or gender violence, or even just in intense interpersonal conflict. Our annoyance, irritation, dislike, Can suddenly be transformed into rage or into hatred because it's rooted in in that mental factor. But as powerful as this underground force is, it's the power of mindfulness that lets us look clearly and deeply into our own minds. And through the power of that mindfulness, we begin to weaken and finally uproot the very deepest tendencies. So a quotation by Carl Jung expresses this so well. He says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable, and therefore not popular. So really what we're doing here is illuminating the shadow side of our mind. The aspects that we don't usually see. You know, the underground, the latent tendencies in which the milder forms of aversion are rooted. So in this first two steps of contemplation of dhammas, we acknowledge whether aversion in any of its forms is present in the mind. We acknowledge when it's not present. In the third step, we go on to contemplate or be mindful of the conditions that lead to the arising of aversion. Now, all of these various aversive states are conditioned reactions to what we find unpleasant. We're really aversive to the pleasant. Now, it's a conditioned response to what we don't like. And just as an untrained mind becomes entranced by pleasurable experiences. We like it, we want it, we enjoy it, we want more of it. In the same way we become dissatisfied or angry or fearful with unpleasant experiences. Now this is very easy to see and to notice and observe in relationship to physical pain. Now what is the first reaction in the mind when we experience pain. Often there's dislike, we don't usually welcome it. There might be fear, there might be discouragement, contraction, frustration, impatience. And on more subtle levels, you know, as our practice evolves and we get better at being with pain, In an equanimous way, we might think that we're open, we might think that we're accepting, that we're being mindful. And yet, sometimes the very language we use to describe our experience in a way that we consider quite objective is actually just furthering a subtle aversive reaction. I'll give you an example. One of the times when I was in Burma and practicing, I'd been there for a month or so, and the practice, my mind was getting concentrated, my body was opening, everything was flowing, the energy felt good. The whole body felt open and flowing except for one spot. You know, this this knot in my neck. And I'd be working it, and I'd be bringing the mindfulness to it. and So I go in to report this to Saira Upandita. He says, you know, the whole body's open, the energy's flowing, but there's this one energy block. And he got on my case a bit for calling it a block. Because just in that languaging, the word itself, as he pointed out, contain desire and aversion, you know. block, something we want to get rid of, something else we want, we want to open it, and so even though I thought I was describing it objectively, it was actually just strengthening those subtle reactions, the actual experience was one of tightness, you know, tightness, tightness, and from the perspective of mindfulness, tightness and tingling are equal, So we see aversion arising in various ways with respect to physical pain. We see aversion often arising when we think of some painful or unpleasant situation. Now we can think of someone or some event that's been difficult, and we can get angry just thinking about it. But in that moment, we're actually just getting angry at a thought. One of Munindraji's favorite lines was, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. And yet, whether it's one's mother or anybody else, the thought comes and it can stir all kinds of reactions. The seemingly spontaneous combustion of thought into feeling, into emotion, shows how intimately connected these two processes are. Thought and emotion so condition each other. The more often we can see this conditioned relationship over and over again, it helps us weaken our attachment to we can our our identification with the emotional reaction so we've all had the experience of thinking of some past event or person you know and it's stirring something up in us what's even quite more remarkable is that the same process can happen about some anticipated future event something that has not happened, that we only imagine might happen. We have these thoughts, and depending on the situation we're imagining, again, it can cause tremendous uh, agitation. I had such a striking experience of this. This happened a number of years ago, but there was a lot of uh, something going on in the... IMS world. And so I was just going for a walk around the loop. And I was noticing in my mind certain thoughts about what I thought might happen at some upcoming meeting. The thought arose, and I could immediately feel sort of aversion and anger and annoyance and irritation arise. But I was pretty mindful. You know, at that moment. And so I, I saw it happen. I saw the thought and then I saw the emotion. So I decided to experiment. And in the moment of noticing the emotion, it, it passed away. But I thought, boy, that's interesting. You know, just this thought and all of a sudden it triggered an emotion. So I decided to have a th- consciously think the thought again. So I brought the thought back and sure enough, it triggered the same emotion. Then I did a third time and a fourth time. It was just so interesting watching the mind. There was almost like a biochemical reaction going on. In one sutta, the Buddha talks of ill will and malice being stirred by nine kinds of thoughts. The Buddha is so good at just analyzing everything, you know, in great detail. So what are the nine kinds of thoughts that can stir ill will or malice in us? It's the thought that someone in the past has done me injury. Someone in the past has injured someone I love. Or someone in the past has done something good for somebody I dislike, for an enemy. that can get us angry. Okay, somebody's harmed me, harmed a loved one, done something good for an enemy in the past, and then same thing for the present, same thing for the future. Nine kinds of thoughts. Watching how thoughts can trigger ill will, how thoughts can trigger aversion, annoyance. That's a powerful understanding of the condition that gives rise to aversive states and to realize that they are just thoughts. So we see aversion arising with regard to pain or unpleasant physical sensations, with regard to thoughts about past or present or future, we can get impatient or frustrated (coughs) with unpleasant situations that arise on the retreat. You know, here you're sitting, it's this beautiful environment, it's protected, everybody's silent. You'd think, oh, there's no cause for aversion to arise here. It doesn't take much. You know, the famous phenomena of the Vipassana vendetta, where it's just somebody, you know, in the group, just doing things that annoy you. You know, you don't like the way they walk, or the way they come into the hall, or the way they sit down, or the way they eat, or how much food they take, or what they're wearing. You don't like the shoes and the noise they're making, whatever. And of course, this aversion, this vipassana vendetta, is exacerbated by the magnifying power of yogi mind. You know, where everything in this context in the mind is is so concentrated, everything gets magnified. So it's another cause for aversion to arise. Or if we're having difficulties in our practice, you know, we're struggling in some way, we often project our dissatisfaction on others. You know, if we're feeling tired, we're feeling grumpy, small things that other people might be doing call up this aversion and irritation. And sometimes it gets carried out to very extreme, uh, in extreme ways. In Burma one time, because it's very hot there, uh, no air conditioning in the monasteries. And just as here, both here at the Forest Refuge and the Retreat Center, we've gone through periods of the window wars. Some people like them open, some people like them closed. In Burma, it was the fan wars. You know, sitting in the hole, should the fans be on or should the fans be off? And at one point, two yogis, they were actually monks, got into a fist fight over the fans. Well, you can imagine Sayadaw's response to that. (laughs) Aversion arises when we personalize difficult situations that are impersonal. Not even ones that in one way or another are directed at us, but totally impersonal situations can cause aversion to arise. And we see it in the world a lot. You know, you go to the airport two hours early and your flight's canceled. You know, or you're stuck in traffic and the mind begins to get agitated. One of my travels, again, this happened quite a few years ago, uh, Sharon and I were teaching in England and we were staying in this hotel in London It was a reasonably nice hotel, and, you know, we were pretty comfortable. And then at 2 o'clock in the morning, the fire alarm goes off, and this clanging noise, you know, and so everybody has to go down to the lobby of the hotel, and it was interesting to see how people went down and what they brought with them, you know, and there was a wide range. Some people were just in kind of their pajamas or nightgowns with a robe, and some had gotten dressed, and some, you know, had their valuables, some didn't. It's okay. The first, you know, it happened. It was not exactly a desirable event, but there was a little bit of excitement to it, you know, and interest. And it was the first time that had ever happened. The next night, the exact same thing happened. (laughs) People's minds, including my own, were a lot less charitable, and the attitude was, "How could they do this to me?" You know, here I am paying this good money, we want a good night's rest. And it was personalizing as if the hotel were doing it on purpose. Even though irrationally one knows that's not the case, emotionally, something gets stirred. So these are some of the conditions that we can see lead to aversive reactions. And they can all be summed up in one very simple understanding. Aversion arises when we don't get what we want. And so I had this image, you know, of this little kid somehow being frustrated in their desire of not getting what they want and, you know, this little kid screaming, I hate you! Well, we've muted the cry a little bit, as adults, but it's actually the same mind state. You know, and it's interesting to see that, you know, and to really look back at the root of aversion within ourselves, you know, in all of its different forms, whether intense or mild, and to see that it really is rooted in dosa, rooted in hatred even though the manifestation may not be that strong. So the next instruction in the sutta is knowing the conditions for the removal of the hindrances. Not only knowing the conditions for their arising, but how do we work with them once they have arisen? Of course, the first and most direct approach is simply being mindful. Not judging the aversion, not judging oneself for having it. Simply opening to it as an arisen mind state. Oh, aversion, aversion. Here the noting can be very helpful. Where we note ill will, we note anger, we note frustration. We note discouragement as soon as these different states arise. And it might be interesting to use the noting as a tool here to keep noting it until the state disappears and actually see how many notes it takes. You know, anger is arising or frustration. Anger, 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 anger. Does it take five notes? Does it take 20 notes? Does it take a hundred notes? Does it take a thousand notes? If you keep noting it, at some point, that mind state, that aversive mind state will change. And to see very clearly, however many notes it takes, to see very clearly that it is an impermanent state is a tremendously liberating insight. Not to know it intellectually, but to actually see it, track it, and notice the moment when it changes an image I have is it's something like you know, these aversive states these aversive emotions arise in the mind it's like a cloud you know, they're not as uh, delimited as a thought which has a clear beginning, middle and end emotions are much more amorphous and for that reason, they're often harder to really be precisely mindful of. So I see the noting, it's almost like poking holes in this cloud of anger. You know, this, what's the word, miasma uh, of ill will. And every note is just, it's like poking a hole, and poke another hole, poke another hole, until there are enough holes that the whole state disperses. So, a first way of working with aversion in terms of removing it once it's arisen is simply to be mindful. But if the state persists, if the aversion is strong and the mindfulness is not strong enough, and we feel really caught in it in some way, then we can also bring in the quality of investigation. So we arouse the investigative aspect of the mind. And we can do this in a variety of ways. First is to check the accuracy of the note. Are we really seeing clearly what the state is? One of the times in Burma, I was sitting, and it was at a time when it was incredibly noisy there just noise on every side from a lot of different uh, sources and I was just feeling annoyed and irritated and grumpy and so I was just noting different states but it was only when I saw that basically what was happening that my mind was complaining it was just complaining mind as soon as I could name it you know, and so accurately the whole force of it disappeared you know, as long as I was noting around it then I was aware that something was there but I, it's like I had not touched the heart of it so when we're caught and something persists just investigate a little bit to see if the note is accurate another powerful way of investigation of bringing investigation to aversive states is to see to look at the relationship of the mind to the emotion again i had i had a very strong experience of this this also happened many years ago it I was on retreat at the retreat center. actually it was a time off retreat uh, when I was just uh, teaching there and there was some meeting and something happened and somebody did something that made me incredibly angry I just I'm, I'm more on the greed type rather than the anger type so Strong anger like that doesn't usually arise, and not that often, but this was powerful. I was just taken over by this anger. And I'm noting anger, 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 and it didn't make a dent. And I went to sleep with this energy, and the energy of the anger woke me up. You know, like at four in the morning, I just woke me up, and the same was coursing through. And at that point, I became so interested In what was happening, I asked myself the question, how am I getting hooked by this anger? Now, that was a very important move. Because in asking the question, how am I getting hooked, I was no longer looping back to the situation. At that point, the situation became irrelevant. And I was simply looking at my relationship to the anger. As long as our mind loops back to the situation, we think of the situation, we get angry, it makes us think of the situation again, we get angry, we're caught. As soon as we step out of the loop and are investigating our relationship to the anger, that's where a place of freedom can be. And what was interesting was that it wasn't even coming up with an answer to that question. So it's not like we ask the question in order to get a printout of an answer. It's simply by asking the question we have already shifted our perspective. And that's what was so freeing in the mind. In this investigation of our relationship to aversive states we can also examine a range of skillful responses there's not just one skillful relationship we can have with anger or ill will and we need to find the response, the relationship that's appropriate to our own conditioning so, for example, if we're the kind of person that tends towards self-judgment, or tends towards unworthiness, we might use the approach which was suggested by Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, and this is what he wrote, he said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it, we don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone, it is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So for those people who have a lot of self-judgment, self-critical, this tender, compassionate, open-hearted embrace of anger, holding it in order to look at it, is very helpful. On the other hand, if we're the type that tends to self-indulgence, or self-pity, it might be more appropriate to use the Saira Upandita method, the warrior mode, pulverizing the defilements, show them no mercy, you know, taking our sword of wisdom and attacking the defilements and cutting their heads off and that whole approach. For people of the self-indulgent type with very repetitive patterns coming up, sometimes this very strong response is very helpful. Instead of the all-embracing yes, we have the very firm no. Enough. You know, a good note I found that I found helpful is dead end. This is not going anyplace. I don't need to do this. Again, it's not that one of these approaches is right and one is wrong. It depends on our own conditioning and it depends on the kind of space we're in. It's to know that there is a range. We can also use the power of investigation to see what associated emotions might be underneath the anger or ill will, which are feeding it like an underground spring. Sometimes under the anger are feelings of self-righteousness or feelings of hurt or feelings of fear. And if we don't open to those, if we don't see those, then it keeps feeding the ill-will, and we don't get free of it. Often being mindful of the underlying emotions, if there are, it often unlocks the whole pattern that we're stuck in. So how do we deal with aversive states once they've already risen? First, is to be mindful, second, to use these different techniques of investigation. There's a third way, and that is through the use of wise reflection. When we're angry, or annoyed, or irritated, it's often a very seductive mind state, because there's the feeling I have good reason to feel this way. This person is doing something, and I'm right to feel this. The Buddha expressed it so clearly in his description when he said, anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip. So often we're seduced by the honeyed tip, either enjoying just the energetic rush, of the anger, or in some way justifying it to ourselves. So when we're seduced in this way, different reflections can be very helpful. When the Buddha spoke of those nine kinds of thoughts provoking malice and ill will, he ended that with a certain reflection, which was... This was a suggestion for us to ask what good will it do to hold on to malice? What good will it do to hold on to anger? What good will it do to hold on to resentment? At those times, we remind ourselves of the question in these states who is it that's suffering? We're the ones who are suffering. It's like holding on to a hot burning coal and saying, well, I should hold on to it. There's a famous verse from the Dhammapada, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. It says, he abused me, he beat me, he defeated me, he robbed me. Those who harbor such thoughts do not still their hatred. So we have to see that hatred or anger or annoyance or whatever is our own responsibility. And it's possible for us to free ourselves from identification with these states. The second reflection, first is what good will it do for me to hold on to this? The second reflection is reminding ourselves of the reference point of our practice. What actually is our aspiration in practice? Is our main concern to be right or to be free? And we need to remind ourselves of what our purpose and aspiration is. And this is a very interesting challenge in life where, in different situations, the anger feels justified. You know, there seems a good reason to feel angry. So we need to ask ourselves is our main purpose to be right or to be free? There's a story which in the suttas, of a woman named Videhika. She lived in the city of Savati in ancient India. It's one of the cities where the Buddha spent a lot of time. And Videhika had the reputation for being this very saintly person. Very gentle, very kind, very open-hearted. She had a maid named Kali, who did all the work. And this made Kali thought, you know, my mistress has this wonderful reputation, but it's actually me who's doing all the work. So I wonder what it would be like you know, to test, to test Videhika, and really see if she's as gentle as it appears. So, Kali started to get up later and later each day. You know, and the work that she was supposed to be doing, she just didn't do. And at first, Videhika would get annoyed or, you know, frustrated. But this went on day after day, and Kali just slept later and later. And it got to the point where Videhika was so angry uh, by Kali's behavior that she took a rolling pin and hit her over the head. When I read this, I had an interesting reaction. Because on the one hand, I did not think it was such a great thing to hit Kali over the head, but I kind of sympathize with Vedaika and just that situation. You know, if if you're counting on somebody to fulfill an agreed-upon responsibility. You know, and they continue not to do it, just out of apparent laziness or disregard, you know, just sleeping later and later and not taking care with something that they've agreed to do. And not just one day, but over many, many days. And I thought, well, I'd be annoyed too if I were counting on somebody uh, to do something that we had agreed upon. But the Buddha is making a very different point here. On a deeper level, the story reminds us of the radical and uncompromising nature of the freedom of Nibbana, of liberation. This is not a freedom that simply means we feel good you know, if the conditions are right. The freedom of the liberated mind is not dependent on conditions. The freedom of a liberated mind is untouched, is unmoved by changing circumstances. So if this is the reference point for our lives, then all the difficult situations we face, the frustrating situations we face, become a truth-reflecting mirror for our own minds. Do we get angry? Do we get upset when things don't happen the way we would like them to? Or do we respond from a place of wisdom? Probably for most of us, it's both. You no know, parts of our mind will get angry, will get upset, will be reactive. And maybe at times we do tap into that place of understanding and wisdom. If we're mindful when the aversive reactions arise, and not only simply be mindful of our own reactions, but even see when there's some important message contained within that reaction, because often there is. You know, we see something, we see an injustice, for example, in the world, and we have a reaction to it. Contained within the reaction is this message, this is wrong, I should do something about this. But if we can reflect on the nature of freedom and not hold on to the anger or hatred, then it's possible to actually take appropriate action from a place of peace. So this is the challenge, it's not easy to do. the first reflection is what good does it do me to hold on to this ill will to this hatred, to this resentment who's suffering the second reflection is understanding the reference point of our aspiration do we want to be free, is that the reference point the third reflection which has been very helpful when the mind's caught up in some aversive reaction or another is understanding the importance of patience and in all of the Buddhist traditions, both in the Theravada and Mahayana and Vajrayana the quality of patience is highlighted in so many different places In the Pali text, there's a line that says, it's patience which leads to Nibbana. Well, patience is the highest virtue. In Shantideva's great work, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, he says, why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? Then we simply remedy it. And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? There's nothing to do about it. And that's such a great encapsulation. And it could be shortened to, why be unhappy? Of course, the tendency of our mind is to fall into that. You know, based on a lot of... uh, Shantideva's teachings, the Dalai Lama often speaks about honoring one's enemies, we could say, our difficult people, the difficult people in our lives, because they teach us patience. Now this is a very easy maxim to agree with theoretically yes, honor your enemy, honor the difficult person because they teach me patience, it's very hard to do in practice. So notice the next time you're having difficulty with someone, difficulty with a certain situation. See if you can remember this reflection. See if it's possible, even for a few moments, to actually touch that place of gratitude to them because it's enabling you to practice patience. It's a a wonderful transformation of the heart in that moment when we can do it. This reflection helps us loosen our attachment to our own point of view. just opens us to holding things in a bigger context. Now the last suggestion for dealing with aversive states which have arisen after all of these others, if none of these work, we try to be mindful, it doesn't work. We investigate in the various ways, it doesn't work. We carry on all these reflections, it doesn't work. Of course, after having done that, the hour will well be over. But if the aversion persists, the Buddha had one last remedy, which was very simple and very pragmatic. He said, think about something else. LAUGHTER so he's actually saying, distract the mind from this obsessing thought, obsessive thought, obsessive feeling. In the text it says, and it's, it's very striking in the context of the Buddhist teachings, it says one of the remedies for aversion in this context is inattention. Right? So practice inattention. <laughs> It's actually something to do, and I've, I've been practicing it in these last few days about something. <laughs> Instead of having the mind just go to the same thing over and over again when there's really nothing quite to do about it, just don't think about it. Think about something else. Okay, so the last of the instructions in this section of the sutta is knowing the conditions that prevent the future arising of aversion. We see the conditions for its arising. We see the conditions for how to work with it when it has arisen. Now we look at the condition that prevents the arising of aversion. Now the most far-reaching of these conditions is the development of loving-kindness, of metta. You know, and it's that quality of the heart, it's that generosity of the heart that simply wishes well to all beings. May all beings be well, may all be happy. And it's a feeling that's not seeking anything back in self benefit, it doesn't have expectations of something in return. And what gives metta its great expansive power its all inclusiveness is that when, it develop, when it's developed when we practice it it makes no distinction between beings it doesn't exclude anyone the feeling of loving kindness has the unlike romantic desire or romantic love metta has the capacity to embrace all beings with the simple wish may you be happy there's a beautiful short Navajo uh, prayer it says I've been to the end of the earth I have been to the end of the waters I have been to the end of the sky. I have been to the end of the mountains. I have found none that were not my friends. And that is that quality of all-embracing friendliness. Metta helps prevent the arising of aversion... Because when it's well-practiced, or when we are practicing it, it's focusing on the good in people rather than on their faults. You know, Our mind, for some reason, has such a tendency to highlight the faults of others. And of course, that stirs aversion. If we can retrain our attention so that it's focusing on the good in others... So then it's metta that naturally arises metta or loving kindness does not easily turn into ill will or jealousy because metta as a heart space is not dependent on people or situations being a certain way and that's its great stability. Because it's not dependent on people or situations being a certain way. We can abide in that generosity of the heart. Be happy. However you are, whatever you're doing, may you be free of suffering. Sometimes people think that if we have too much meta or always focusing on the good in others, know that it makes us stupid in some way, and that we'll no longer see the truth of what's going on. We're not able to take appropriate action. But it's actually the mind that's not clouded by anger or hatred that allows us to see situations clearly and to chart the right course of action. Even in very difficult situations, the anger, the hatred, the ill will does not help. It's important to realize, of course, that all of our aversion does not fall away with the first phrase we utter of loving-kindness. The bodhisattvas spend years, even lifetimes, cultivating and purifying this quality of the heart. But as we practice it, as we recognize it, as we develop it, as we become more familiar with it, the feeling of loving kindness, the feeling of metta starts to arise more and more spontaneously in our lives. It becomes more and more the way we are rather than something we do and the boundaries between metta and mindfulness begin to dissolve someone once asked Deepama whether she should be practicing mindfulness or loving kindness Deepama answered from my experience there is no difference for her love and awareness were one when you are fully loving, aren't you also mindful? And when you are fully mindful, is this not also the essence of love? And I think for all of us, as we do both formal practices, we begin to see that the qualities begin to merge together. That when the metta is there, we're mindful. And that when the mindfulness is there, there is that feeling of love. Just one of those, since we're on Deepa Ma, there's one one other little uh, anecdote. Uh, one, one teacher described being hugged by Deepa Ma so thoroughly that all my six feet fit into her great, vast, empty heart with room for the whole of creation. Yeah, and that's, that's that union of love and emptiness. Here is where metta, as a dissolver of aversion, also becomes the ground for wisdom. Because the more loving, the more patient we are with the difficulties and disturbances that arise in our practice, in our lives, the more we can discern what is skillful and what is unskillful. We're not so lost in our immediate reactivity. The more loving, the more patient we are gives greater space for discerning wisdom. With discerning wisdom, then our choices and our actions become wiser. As our choices and actions become wiser, we're happier. As we're happier, we feel more metta. As we feel more love, there's more discerning wisdom. More discerning wisdom, wiser choices. Wiser choices, happier. Happier, more metta. And so it's this great spiral upward leading to the end of suffering. So I'd like to close with... this little closing teaching from Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche who was one of our Dzogchen teachers he said, I would like to pass on one little bit of advice I give to everyone relax, just relax be nice to each other as you go through your life simply be kind to people try to help them rather than hurt them Try to get along with them rather than fall out with them. With that, I will leave you and with all my best wishes.